The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. <laughs> All right. Um, so, if you guys are not aware, we are in the gospel series, and Josh uh, dumped Mark on me and then took off. So, that's what happened there. Um, and he asked, uh, his goal in this series was basically to give us a key. Uh, for reading each of the Gospels. Um, I'm going to admit to you, this is a bit of a, it's going to be a bit heady. So uh, when you give someone a, a whole entire book and say, preach on that, it's, you set yourselves up for danger. So anyway, nonetheless, this is going to be fun. So I've entitled this sermon, The Art of the Plot Twist. And uh, just to give a definition, the common definition of a plot twist is a totally unexpected outcome to a story. Now, I know there's a lot of dads in here with children, so maybe you can relate to this story, but I, from time to time, rarely, get tricked by a well-designed yet highly misleading movie trailer or pressured by my children into watching a big box office Hollywood action movie. And one of the most annoying things about the storylines that Hollywood produces for us today is the, in the majority of those movies is that the, it just has a predictable plot. Now, I'm sure it's great for small children that seem content with a few stage laughs, great visual stunning effects, and regurgitated storylines with just a few new characters. And you can leave the movie uttering that proverbial of American modern sayings, it was cute. But for the more mature mind, it's like being served a side salad and a glass of water after a long day's manual labor for dinner when your body is really craving a rare steak, red potatoes, and a red frothy ale. You just leave discontent and still hungry. Sorry. Um, and I bring this analogy up because if I'm truly honest, and I put all that scripted humor aside for a moment, I truly do feel tragically that we are at large in the West, in the time that we are in, have come to a place where we gen- with what we generally summarize as the gospel is so, is so familiar that the storyline for us has become, well, quite predictable. We feel we have the storyline down to a formula, and if honest, we see the same formula simply reproduced from a slightly different angle, sermon after sermon, song after song, saying after saying, which moves us away from the kind of disposition that we need to approach the Gospels. The Gospels are theological masterpieces delivered through the art of storytelling. They are not merely dictation some form of direct reporting of the facts without personality or distinct purpose. Every incident mentioned is purposeful. Every conversation is meticulously crafted to ultimately bring attention to the facet the author's mind was set towards conveying. And that emphasis differs for all of them, making the Gospels a fascinating expression. The Gospels are true art, and we have to develop a mind with a true appreciation for the art of literature before we can see the layers of insight that the author has embedded through them. And as I study Mark, it appears to me that it does not fall into the plot type associated with big box office movies. Rather, it is one long, meticulously crafted narrative that guides its readers progressively and mysteriously into a complex plot twist. And like any great sophisticated plot with a twist, It doesn't give the twist away until the right moment. But the peculiarity of Mark's plot twist, however, is it happens 
after the credits have started to roll, after the story has been abruptly ended. So what plot plot twist do I speak of? Well, the plot twist revolves around who Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified, actually was or is. As you're reading Mark, you repeatedly read these mysterious phrases and continuously encounter these strange moments of elusiveness of Jesus not wanting to reveal who he is. And that theme haunts the entire gospel. So Jesus exercises demons, yet Mark's emphasis outside of the physical exorcism itself is that Jesus needed to silence them regarding his identity. He did not allow the demons to speak because they recognized him, Mark 1.34. Then Jesus goes and heals a man with leprosy. And after that says, see that you tell nothing to anyone. Of course, he goes off and tells everybody. Then we have that strategically placed question from Jesus to his closest disciples in Caesarea. Whom do people say me to be? To which the disciples respond, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and yet others one of the prophets. But then he asked them directly, but you, who do you say me to be? To which Peter infamously responds, you are the anointed, or better known, translated, you are the Messiah. To which Mark tells us Jesus warned them sternly that they should tell no one about him. It seems clear that the question of who do you think I am is deliberately and repeatedly placed all the way through the narrative in different scenarios to provoke curiosity in the reader. The narrative leads us to ponder the rational and available options to answer this question throughout. Is he one of the prophets? Is he Elijah? Come again. Is he John the Baptist, perhaps, reincarnated? Is he the promised son of David, the anointed, the Messiah? Throughout the narrative, there is a slow frustration skillfully built up in the narrative because of Jesus' elusiveness regarding his identity. And in those places where he seems to be going deeper and giving more detail with his small group of disciples, Mark deliberately makes the point that his hearers did not understand what he meant by it. This frustration builds up to the point that you as the reader want at some point to grab one of the, get one of the characters to just grab Jesus and say, for God's sake, will you tell us who you are? Will you get it out in the open? Well, near the end of the gospel of Mark 14, 62, which is the passage that we read, we finally get closer to that desire through Caiaphas. In chains and dragged by a mob before the assembled power base of the high priest, Caiaphas, in his moment of enough is enough, after not getting Jesus to speak regarding his intentions and reported prophecies regarding the destruction of the temple, just straight out asked the question, are you the anointed, the son of the blessed one? Or are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Now, this is a strategic question because the Messiah would historically be the only one who have authority above the temple to which the entire priest power base had its, had its power structured. And after 14 chapters of the readers going through this progression of mystery and silence and elusive don't tell anyone language, Jesus finally comes out and just says it publicly and plainly. I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of the sky. I believe if Mark had had the art of modern cinematography here, I am certain that this moment would have been a creative collage of close-up angles and a gloriously suspenseful soundtrack played, played as the words left his mouth. But he only had words. 
So now, as, as, climac- as climactic as, mom- as this moment is between Caiaphas and Jesus, this is not Mark's plot twist itself, however. However, it is the central moment that triggers the deep questioning in the reader to go further down the mysterious rabbit hole regarding Jesus' identity. Mark shows the importance of this moment by the reaction of Caiaphas in the crowd. Please understand that Jesus' response was a direct response to the question asked to Caiaphas. However, it was over and above what Caiaphas had asked. And more than the, and more than the neatly and tidy identity options available to Caiaphas at that time. Which is why the mob did not simply sneer at the overzealous answer of yet another would-be Messiah, but rather they tear their robes in rage and shouts of blasphemy and instantly react in acts of mob violence. At this moment of self-disclosure, Jesus pulls from and forges together two highly important pieces of Old Testament imagery laced with mystery, He's actually used, spoke to them separately in the past of Mark's gospel, but at this moment he blends them together in one perfect sentence. One of them is from Psalm 110, which basically speaks of a king elevated to the right hand of God who also has the status of a priest. And also the second part of the, the part he Jesus uses in this sentence to Caiaphas is a vision from Daniel chapter 7, which is a mysterious figure regarding the Son of Man that according to Daniel's vision represented his people and would be vindicated and elevated to a position that it seems that no man could hold, to be given the rule and allegiance of all the nations and to sit on the throne with the God of Israel. There was no neat, tidy, defined doctrine for putting all this imagery in, but Jesus is strategic by strategic exposition of Scripture in a single sentence untaps this mystery and identifies himself as the mysterious person who would somehow share the throne of God himself. He is suddenly more than they had a predictable plot for, and it caused instant rageful reaction. This is that moment in the narrative where you really start to wonder exactly who Jon Snow really is. Those who have ears, let them hear. After this long-awaited and build-up moment of self-disclosure, Mark literally, literally rushes along to the crucifixion and the resurrection with very little detail compared to the rest of the gospel writers. He ends the story with two women disciples running to tell the rest that the tomb was empty and they saw an angel that, and he, and, um, that said, had said he had risen and that's it. No narrative regarding the resurrected Jesus, no instructions by him to his disciples, no interaction with the disciples. Written, um, the credits just start to roll. And you sit there and turn to the person next to you and saying, is that really the end? Now that leads me to the conclusion that Mark has made this interaction between Jesus and Caiaphas regarding his identity the central verbal climactic moment of his gospel. This is what he was aiming at. After this climactic moment between Jesus and Caiaphas, Mark's gospel leaves Jesus practically silent. Outside of one, you say it in response to Pilate's question of his claims of kingship, and then one final cry of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? Mark, Jesus is relatively silent. Mark leaves out the long back and forth dialogues with Pontius Pilate that the Gospel of John describes. There is no communication with two brigands crucified next to him that the other Gospel writers include. There's no interaction with the crowd as they pass him crucified. 
Rather, Mark hastily rushes to the finish. Mark's focus has been the identity of Jesus all along, which is why this interaction between Caiaphas is the focus that is the driving shape of his narrative. I believe Mark intends this climactic verbal moment between Jesus and Caiaphas to linger with you, so much so that he does not clutter the end of his narrative, even with the details regarding the most crucial events of the resurrection. He stays minimalistic because he wants you to wrestle with this mysterious statement of Jesus to go back through the story after his abrupt ending to see if the author was giving any clues regarding his identity that you feel you now should have seen. And indeed, if we go back through with this question regarding this crucified one's identity, there are many clues along the way. <clears throat> However, they are subtle, because that's Mark's style. He is reverently elusive. He doesn't make the connections for his readers like Matthew. If you're reading Matthew and you read something, it normally says, and this was done to fulfill the prophecy here. And he fills in the gaps. He doesn't want you to make any mistakes. He doesn't want you to miss it. Mark doesn't do that. Mark leaves the mystery. Mark doesn't like to poetically unveil deep mysteries like John. He doesn't give the acute clarity of Luke. Mark is so elusive that he continue, he's even continually telling us how elusive he is by focusing on how the characters in his narrative miss the clues themselves, which is a technique in itself. Mark is laden with mystery, and mystery is used to slowly provoke questions. And Mark, throughout this gospel, is provoking the questions among those who have ears to hear. He asks those questions not directly to his readers as the author, but through the mouth of his characters in his narration. But he is leading the reader to ask the same questions that his characters ask as they follow along. And Mark's primary question that drives his narrative has to do with the person of Jesus, the question of exactly who he is. Now, all the logical possibilities and the predictable plots of Jesus' identity are openly explored in Mark's gospel. All the questions of who he might be are openly explored in the narrative itself. John the Baptist and the others Elijah and the other prophets, the actual roles of the son of David, the anointed one, the Messiah, all of those are explored in the narrative the Lord who sits at the right hand of God, and even the mysterious Son of Man are all wrestled with openly in Mark's gospel. Yet the deeper truth of who Mark truly believes Jesus is, is hidden in subtle mystery. It's never spoken by one of his characters. It's never said direct. He is reverently elusive regarding it. So what we're going to do to see this subtle art form used by Mark to disclose who he believes Jesus is, is we're going to go back through the gospel. We're going to start again and look for three specific scenes where Mark was leaving clues along the way, provoking us to ask the question of who exactly Jesus is. And there are truly more clues than we have time to cover, so we're just going to highlight these three just so we can hopefully grasp the art form. And the way we're going to find these clues is by looking for oddities. Oddities are those small, small, odd things that a storyteller leaves to provoke questions. They are things we as modern readers often raise an eyebrow at in confusion in the Bible and then just move on past, which is why we must remind ourselves again and again that when reading the Gospels, that the authors had an array of circulated information 
and known incidences before them of which to choose from. In fact, John at the end of his gospel makes it a point to conclude that his gospel stating that if all that Jesus had done had been written down one by one, that he thought the cosmos itself, the world itself, would not contain all the books that could be written. Meaning that as they sat down to pen, or as Luke puts it, set their hands to laying out an orderly narrative regarding the events that had been brought to fulfillment among us, that they each had to choose what they highlighted, what they mentioned and what they leave unmentioned, how much time they spend on one incident versus another, what amount of detail they give to each moment they include, how much of the dialogue is shared, how much of the reactions of the people are conveyed. Which means that each gospel writer does not waste a word. So when you see something strange or odd or seemingly irrelevant in the gospels, it is normally a clue that is designed to make you question the author's choice of selection. So here we're going to go through three oddities in Mark's gospel that serve as clues to find our plot twist. And those oddities are these. I'm going to go through the first one a little more extensively because it's tough to see. The other two I'll I'll go through pretty quickly once we get the concept. But oddity number one, do we really need to know what John the Baptist was wearing? Oddity number two, ripping a hole in the roof seems just a little bit extreme. And oddity number three, James, I mean, Jesus' strange personal encounter with a fig tree. So, oddity number one. Do we really need to know what John the Baptist was wearing? I'm going to read just from the beginning of Mark's opening, which is different than all the other Gospels' openings. So I want to just read it through. The beginning of the good tidings of Jesus the Anointed. As has been written by Isaiah the prophet, See, I send forth my messenger before your face, who will prepare your path. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the Lord's way, make straight his paths. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, reclaiming a baptism of the heart's transformation for forgiveness of sins. Now all the region of Judea and the Jerusalemites went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed in camel's hair and a leather girdle about his loins, and he would eat locusts and wild honey. Why do I need to know that? If no single word is wasted by the authors, if they are picking and choosing what to put in and what to leave out, then why in the world does Mark waste a whole sentence letting us know what John liked to wear and eat? Oddity. I mean, we don't even know what Jesus liked to wear and eat. Is Mark a bigger fan of John than Jesus? So much so that John gets his clothing mentioned and Jesus doesn't even get a birth narrative to read at Christmas? This is where we need to see the gospel writers are masterful theologians, not merely scribes reporting. Mark, with his detail, is making an important connection and reinforcing the importance of what his gospel's opening is conveying. The very crafting of the opening of his gospel is revealing his agenda in the gospel. It is laden with clues as to what he wants to eventually bring the reader's reader's attention to, which is the identity of Jesus. So why do we need to know these details regarding John the Baptist's taste in clothing and his apparent embracing of the paleo diet? Well, it has to do with the art of Mark's opening. It's a well, Mark's opening is, a, is in a masterful collage of Old Testament texts. So he blends, for a start, Malachi 3.1. He blends this. 
Look, Malachi 3.1 reads, Look, I am going to send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. This all sounds familiar. And the Lord whom you are seeking will come suddenly in his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you are taking pleasure. Look, he is about to come, says Yahweh of hosts. He blends this perfectly with Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 reads, A voice is calling in the wilderness, clear the way of Yahweh, make a highway smooth in the desert of our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain shall be, become low, and the rough ground shall be like plain, and the rugged ground like the valley plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all humankind shall see it together. These two have been woven together and in a purposeful entry with no quotations. It's not a direct citation. And they're regarding the coming day of Yahweh, of God coming himself, returning to Jerusalem, and that one will prepare his way, to which Mark goes immediately to speak of John the Baptist out in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of the heart's transformation, seemingly making the connection for us with the previous prophecies, meaning that John the Baptist is the one that's clearing the way of Yahweh, And John seems to be the messenger that's spoken of. However, the book of Malachi, from which John has already gave us an indication, I mean, Mark, sorry, has already given us an indication he's speaking from, has at the end of its book a very important passage that he needs to get something out of. So So just so we know, and obviously you guys know this, if you look through your Bible in the Old Testament, it ends with the book of Malachi. And in the very end of the book of Malachi, you have, after that, apparently a 400-year gap where there's no actual doctrine put together um, as, as, as doctrine. Um, and then straight after that, you go straight into the Gospels. So realistically, if you think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the last thing a Jewish person would have read would have been the end of Malachi. So when they start their Gospels, that's the gap they're picking up on. However, at the end of Malachi, the very last sentence, in Malachi 4, 5 through 6, it says this, look... I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh, and he will bring back the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the hearts of the sons to their fathers, so that I will not come and strike the lamb with a ban. So Mark's opening has one puzzle and one last piece that it needs connection. If Mark is trying to say with this collage of texts that in this moment, this is the day of Yahweh, then where is Elijah? To which Mark says, without ever directly saying it, he's right there baptizing people in the wilderness. And you will know him by what he's wearing. Second Kings reads this, 1, 8, 1, verses 1 through 18. Bear with me because the, the punch is at the end. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Isaiah had fallen through the Latisse in his upper room, which is in Samaria. And he was injured. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, if I will survive this injury. Then the angel of Yahweh spoke to Elijah the Tishbite, Get up and go meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and speak to them. Is it because there is no god in Israel that you have gone to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, says Yahweh, the bed which you have, upon which you have gone, you will not come down from it, but you shall surely die." So Elijah went. When the messengers returned to him, he asked them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, A man came up to us to meet us. And he said, Go return to the king who sent you and speak to him. And then he gives them what Yahweh had said. And then the king says, The king spoke to them, 
What was the manner of this man who came up to meet you and to spoke to you all these things? And they answered him, A hairy man with a leather belt girded around his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Mark is making the subtle connection for those who have ears to hear that John the Baptist in some mysterious way is the coming of Elijah before the great and awesome day of the world, before the awesome day of Yahweh. Now, it isn't a direct quotation, but that's not Mark's style. But go through the rest of this book and find me someone where it happens to mention that they are hairy and they wore a leather belt outside of Elijah and John the Baptist. Do you see how he is alluding to the old, the old story? If you were familiar with the text, something would have went off. But the fact is we're not familiar, so we have to have help sometimes of making the connection. Mark doesn't help us. Matthew would have said, this was quoting because Elijah wore it, but that's not Mark's style. However, as fascinating and revealing as that masterful art of storytelling is, what Mark really slips past us without skipping a beat is how he started this introduction and jumped straight from this complex web of Old Testament eschatology text to the character of Jesus. Without explanation or exposition for the massive leap he took, he carries on without concern for the reader's possible confusion regarding Jesus' identity. So from Mark's opening, we grasp that one was to be sent to prepare the way of Yahweh. We get that. And Mark seems to insinuate that that is John, who happens to be somehow Elijah, who was said to become before the great day of Yahweh. And John speaks of one greater than him coming, whom he isn't fit to bend down and loosen the thong of his sandal, and then we jump straight to, and in those days, it happened that Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee came and was baptized by, uh, in the Jordan by John. And then it's Jesus for the rest of the gospel. As if we should not be slightly puzzled, pause and go back to the introduction and ask, wait, who exactly are you insinuating Jesus is? Because it appears that he is insinuating that in some odd and mysterious way, this Jesus steps into the role that was designed for the God of Israel. Oddity number two. Ripping a hole in the roof seems a little extreme. So, without reading the entire text, we know that Jesus, next in Mark, in a couple of chapters later, Jesus is healing in a house. Some people show up with a friend who is a paralytic. They can't get through the door because there's a massive crowd. So they decide to get up on the roof, tear a hole in, apparently, Jesus' house's roof, and lower him down, of which, um, as much as it's not an oddity as number one, it is an odd story that gets your attention. It, gets, it kind of engages your heart in the story and brings you into what's happening. However, Mark's agenda is not so much that Jesus heals, because if we read through the rest of the text, we'll see what the, the, the situation was developed for this very issue. So reading it, it says, And Jesus, seeing their faith, says to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak thus? He blasphemes. Who can forgive sins except God alone? And Jesus, immediately aware in his spirit that they reason this among themselves, says to them, why do you reason over these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, rise up and take your pallet and walk? But in order that you should know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins on the earth, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up take up your palette and go to your house. Mark's intention is really to zoom your eyes into this question of who can forgive sins except God alone. 
He doesn't ask the question, but he puts it in the mouth of the characters in his narration so that the reader says, yeah, who can forgive sins except God alone? And they start to question, here is Jesus healing outside of the temple, which is where all healing normally happens in the Jewish context. He is challenging in himself. He is doing things outside of where the presence of God is. Jumping up to point number, oddity number three. Jesus' strange personal conflict with a fig tree. <clears throat> Mark eleven twelve 12 <clears throat> reads this way. And as they went out from Bethany the next day, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree bearing leaves, he went over, seeing whether he will perhaps find something on it. And coming up to it, he found nothing except leaves, for it is not the, same, the season for figs. And speaking out, he said to it, May no one eat fruit from you again through the age. And his disciples hear him, and they come into Jerusalem. What is that about? He talks to a fig tree. It's not fig season, and he rebukes it. I mean, just all of us who have grown up watching too many movies and putting human emotions on animals and plants, we you kind of feel for the fig tree. I mean, what does the fig tree do? It's not even fig season. Now, this is clearly a very odd scene, um, but it's used to bookend Jesus' trip into Jerusalem and, and regarding its prophecy, regarding its destruction. Right after the scene, you see Jesus flipping the tables in the temple. And right after they leave the temple, the, the disciples happen to notice, hey, that fig tree's withered. So it literally, Mark is purposefully putting the temple's destruction or the prophecy regarding it right in between this scene. Now, to us modern readers, it makes no sense whatsoever. However, for those of us who are familiar with the Old Testament, for the Jews of that day who would have known their scripture, there are a couple of things indicating something here. In Jeremiah 8.13, Jeremiah is rebuking Israel for its apostasy, for practicing deceit with no shame among them. He talks of their demise and his snatching away, and he says to them in this line a poetical description of them after he's given this political uh, discussion. He says, There are no grapes on the vine, and there are no figs on the fig tree and the leaves wither, and what I gave to them passed over them. Now, once again, it's not a direct quotation. Mark doesn't use it. But of all the things that Jesus might choose to have an odd moment with, the fig tree happens to have context in the Old Testament and is normally used as language for rebuking the apostate Israel, which after Jesus does this, he goes straight into Jerusalem to deal with this issue of an apostate Israel. You also see just after that in Isaiah 5, in um, 1 through 7, he reads this. Let me sing, uh, Yahweh is singing about Israel. Let me now sing for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. And he also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to, to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? Why then would I expect to, why, why, why when I expect it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedges and it will be consumed and I will break down its walls and it will become trampling ground. I will lay it to waste. It will not be pruned or hoed but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain on it. Not, no rain ought to go on it. 
For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, behold, a cry of distress. It is language. Jesus is going into Jerusalem looking for fruit, looking for those who are supposed to inherit, the, who are supposed to be reproducing the fruit of the kingdom, and he finds nothing in Jerusalem. And then, obviously, we know from there, 40 years later in 70 AD, Jerusalem is destroyed. All that to say, do you see what Mark's getting to? He's getting to the fact. However, Mark makes no direct connotation there, but the question comes to us this. Who is this man that comes looking for figs on trees in the same manner as the prophet spoke of the God of Israel? In some mysterious way, Jesus from Nazareth speaks in language and does by actions things already ascribed to the God of Israel leaving the lingering question with the reader of exactly who Mark is saying it was that we nailed to a tree. Who exactly it was that he narrates crying as his last words, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? Who exactly it was that was not in the tomb? And the mystery remain, remains open as the credits roll on the end of Mark's gospel. And there, as the reader goes back through looking for clarity to the lingering questions, they have that moment, that plot twist moment, that freeze all motor functions Bernard moment. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. That, oh my God, Jon Snow is actually the son of Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanne Stark moment. Yeah, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Where they see that this Jesus of the Nazarene, who was nailed to a crucifix outside of the walls of Jerusalem, was somehow, mysteriously, the embodiment of the very God of Israel who the bypassers were en route to worship within the walls of Jerusalem. So we are walking past God to go and worship God. And from the grasping of this plot twist, all the moments of the scenes of the narrative come rushing to our mind with the knowledge of who Jesus of Nazareth really was. When we think of him being beat by, the, by Caiaphas with a swollen eye looking at Peter who abandons him. When we think of all of the tragedy of the torture and the crucifixion itself, all of a sudden it breaks us to realize who Jesus of Nazareth was. He was indeed the embodiment of the God of Israel. We crucified God. And that is where one falls in worship of such a God that would die at our hands in order to set us free. There is no other plot in the world like this. If I had to be asked of my children, why do I believe this story, is because there is no other story like this story. There is no other that has such a plot twist at the end. So what does Mark, as I wrap this up, what does Mark bring to the table in his collection of Gospels? Mark is about seeing the God in the subtleness. Mark is about the mystery, about seeing and hearing in the mystery. But it seems in this day, however, that we have drifted from mystery. We have for centuries sliced and diced this book into pieces, we have volumes of systematic theology and books on every subject known to it. 
We have the fine lines dividing us on mysterious, mysterious things because we alone know exactly what was he meant. We have a structure and a protocol, a nice structured script to follow. And we have entered an age of pragmat, pragmatism and practicality. Ten steps to this and eight practices to accomplishing that. And our motto is for every gathering, for every teaching, yes, but what was the practical takeaway? We leave nothing on the table. But Mark's gospel teaches us the reverence of mystery, to not lose a sense of wonder, of curiosity, of awe, to not stop asking questions, to not start expecting a predictable plot, but be prepared for the totally unexpected outcome. It is not a mystery to leave us no ground to stand, but Mark at least wants to make sure that we don't move beyond it as if we have found all that is to be found. To remove that element of what we have come to inherit. And I end this saying this, I desperately, church, I desperately want to help kindle the flame of mystery again, whatever it takes. For familiarity and predictable plots are the death of the soul. Thinking we know the script and all its depths already is the end of wonder and pursuit. Mark would tell us the God we seek is the God who hides more of himself in the mystery. If we are done seeking more of him, if we think we found all there is to be found, if we have all that we need to feel secure so we can wash our hands and move on, having collected um, the ticket to the pearly gates and staying off the naughty list, then there is really nothing much more to do than routine, than to watch predictable plots with a smile of content because it's secure. But if you know somewhere inside you that you need to be closer to him, then we need to go into the mystery. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.